0: And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the powers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all who any had need. And day by day, attending a temple together and breaking bread in their homes, They received the food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their date, their number, day by day, those who were being saved. You may be seated. Amen. Amen, church. We just sang a song a few minutes ago, and one of the lines was, and the church of God was born. The church of God was born. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. All right, confession time. I grew up on military bases. Please don't hold that against me. My father spent 20 years in the army. We traveled all over the U.S. And let me just tell you that even to this day, if I step onto a military base, I feel right at home. I do. I know what to expect I can tell you where the commissary is, which is a grocery store, if you're not familiar with that term. You know, as military families will tell you, there is community among the men and women and families who are in the military. Why is that? Because they understand the life. They're in it together. The soldiers serve together. They know what's expected of them. They they know how to behave. They know how to operate as a unit. They get it. The families of the soldiers, they likewise get it. They understand each other. They know the burden of having a husband or father or wife or mother in the military. They get it. There's community. We've been going through this short series on the church entitled Church Basics. What we've done through this series is we've defined the church. We've looked at what the church is about, the four pillars, We've talked about church leadership, and now this morning, I want to close our series on church community in a question, what do we do as a church? We've talked about several topics. We've fleshed out many things about what the church does, but what's the nitty-gritty? What is the everyday things that we do as a church? How does the church community behave? Or maybe I should ask it this way. What is the church community devoted to? What are we as the people, what are we devoted to? We're going to answer that question this morning from Acts 2, 42 through 47. So if you haven't done so already, join me there. I'm going to read verses 42 and 43 again. It goes like this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. The first thing we see about church community through our text is this. The church community is devoted to worshiping God. What do we do? What are we devoted to? We are devoted to worshiping God. How do we get community? We get community by, first of all, devoting ourselves to worshiping God. The text starts off in verse... 42 and says, and they you should ask yourself a question. Who's the they? Who are we talking about? Well, in order to answer that question, we've got to bump back one verse to verse 41. Read that with me, it's on screen. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about three thousand souls. Now, this comes right after Peter preaches a sermon on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus Christ, and it's these newly saved believers who make up the they. That's who we're talking about, these 3,000 people along with the apostles and those who follow Jesus. That's the they. The church of Christ has been born. That's what Acts 2.42 Through 47 is. It's the church of Christ being born. It's the church community has been created. And what do they do? The first thing we say is their devotion to the worship of God. It says that they are devoted, or they devoted themselves. What does that word devoted mean? It means to attach oneself. The word devoted there means to attach oneself. It has this idea of commitment, of persevering through devotion. This same word was used in the previous chapter of the apostles. In Acts 1:14, it says that of the apostles, they devoted themselves to prayer. It's that commitment. In our day and age, you would think of it as commitment. I'm committed to doing X, Y, Z. That's the idea here. The newly formed church community was devoted. It was devoted to the worship of God. Nothing would stop their commitment to this church. And specifically here in the first two verses, we find themselves devoted in four ways. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And I just want to briefly look at all four things. So they're devoted to the worship of God. What does that mean? It means these four things, and I'm just going to touch on each of them. First of all, it says the apostles' teaching. Now, that would have been their authoritative messages, their preaching, which would have, of course, been about Jesus. Jesus. And if you look back at chapter 2, we're not going to do that now, but if we look back at chapter 2 to what Peter was preaching in Acts 2, probably gives us a general idea of how their sermons went. And they talked about Jesus. They talked about the cross. They probably talked about how he fulfilled prophecy from the Old Testament, talked about his resurrection. We don't know the exact content, but it's not difficult to conclude that their sermons were about Jesus. The people were devoted to the teaching of the gospel. Secondly, They were devoted to the fellowship. Now, that word fellowship in the Greek is koinonia. You may have heard that word before, and it means to be in close association involving mutual interest and sharing. In close association involving mutual interest and sharing. I mean, if you think about it, we have general fellowships and associations and things all over the world. We've got groups that we're a part of. Perhaps you're a part of this group or that group or another. But when we talk about the fellowship here, the koinonia, we're specifically talking about the fellowship of believers. Now, I'm going to get into this more in my second point, but, but just to give you a taste of it right now, this fellowship of believers is held together by Jesus Christ. It is centered around Jesus Christ. David Garland is a Bible commentator, and he writes this on this idea. He says, They held to the centrality of Jesus of Nazareth in the redemptive program of God and in their worship. Jesus was at the center. See, that's what separates Christian community from all other communities, from all other associations, from all other fellowships. Not that there's necessarily anything wrong with those, but the thing that makes us distinct is that we come together around Jesus Christ. And if the church ever centers around anything else, it no longer becomes a church. It has to be centered entirely around Jesus Christ. That's the koinonia. The third thing that the church was doing is it was devoting themselves to the breaking of bread. Now, this here in verse 42 seems to be different from what Luke says in verse 46. He uses the same phrase, but in verse 46, it seems more like he's talking about breaking bread in the sense of sharing a common meal. In verse 42, it's likely that this is a special meal. It's a meal of fellowship. It could be the Lord's Supper or communion. We're going to celebrate that today. It could be what was known as love feasts, which, as we see in church history, we're not exactly sure what they were, but there were these things called love feasts that we believe the church gathered together and had together, the early church. But whatever is meant here by the breaking of bread, it seems to be more than just your ordinary meal. There was something special, something you could almost say something religious about this. And it makes sense because that breaking of bread is sandwiched in between the fellowship and the prayers. Luke, as, as he's writing this, he's, he's listing out several things that the church was doing And so he includes this breaking of bread, and it seems to distinct it from just a common meal. Now, the last thing that he says here is the prayers. And note that he calls it the prayers, not simply prayer. We expect he might say they devoted themselves to prayer in general, but it says they devoted themselves to the prayers. And likely what's going on there is Luke is alluding to formal prayers that were done during the services. We have formal prayers here that we do on Sunday mornings, and it likely, in in Jewish services actually, before the church, Jewish services would have had formal prayers that they did, and it's easy to believe that the early church also had times of formal praying during their service. So these are the four practices that the early church did, their devotion to worshiping God. And then we're told in verse 43, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Permeating through the early church was a sense of awe. It's literally the word fear in the Greek, reverent fear, and it says came upon every soul, which suggests that not only were believers in the church experiencing this awe, but unbelievers were sensing it as well. At least they were sensing there's something going on here. And perhaps part of the reason they were experiencing this awe, this reverent fear, is because the text tells us that the disciples, or the apostles rather, were doing signs and wonders. Peter and the others were doing amazing things. In fact, in chapter 3, the very next chapter, Peter heals a lame man. They continue that healing ministry that Jesus had started. They were touching people and healing people and marvelous things were being done. Why? Why did that need to continue after Jesus did all of his work? The reason the apostles would be able to heal was to authenticate their message. The apostles did amazing things by the power of the Holy Spirit to point to God, to point to the message of salvation, to essentially say, this is not just some new thing, this is the real deal. The point is that I'm trying to make here, the early church was devoted to the worship of God through these practices. And over time, these are the practices, these are the elements that make up the majority of what church services are today. Churches preach. Churches observe communion. Churches pray. Churches are devoted to each other, to this center around Jesus, this koinonia. So let me encourage you with all that in mind, Be a community that is devoted to worshiping God. If you want the koinonia, if you want the community of the church, then the first priority is to worship God. How do we do that? By emulating the early church. We must come to this thing, this thing we call the church, we must come to it with the same passion and tenacity as they did. Let me encourage you, don't just show up on Sundays and check your came to church box. We've got to get out of that frame of mind and be intentional to come with the desire to meet with God. How do we do that? Well, a couple of things. We have to come reflectively. We have to come reflectively. In other words, we have to remind ourselves what the church is. We're not just going to some everyday thing. We're not just doing this as the next thing that we do. We're coming to the church. It's the place of worship. It's the place where we gather with other believers to lift high the name of Jesus. We have to come reflectively, reminding ourselves what the church is. But we also have to come expectantly. Expect God to do something. Ask the Holy Spirit to ignite your passion for this thing. Pray on your way to church that God is going to work in your heart, that he will push through whatever the distractions are, whatever the temptations are, whatever fears may be blocking your heart, and we all get those. Pray through those. Pray that the Holy Spirit will tear down those things and give you an excitement and an expectation that God's going to do something today. I believe he already has done something today in our time of worship. He's always working, so let's expect him to work As we come to church, let's be devoted. And then, one more thing I want to share. How do we do this thing? Well, in a negative sense, we need to recognize the things that distract us from being devoted. Recognize the things that distract us from being devoted. What kinds of things? There's all kinds of things. I'm just going to name two. What are some things that distract us from being devoted? First of all, the daily routine. The daily routine that we all have. Routines are good. Don't get me wrong. Routines are needed, but routines can easily distract us from God. Or they can cause us to miss when God is at work. I'm just going to confess to you. There are times when I am in the zone. You know what I mean? I am in the routine. I am doing my thing around the house, around the job, whatever it is. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but sometimes there's something happening over here. There's something happening over here with the kids. or There's something happening over here with this person. God is moving, and I'm missing it because I'm in the zone. So although routines are good, they can be a distraction to our devotion. What's another distraction to our devotion? Career. Career is a big distraction. Like, work is good. God gave us work. It's a God-given thing, but it's so easy to let our focus slip from God to Career. How easy is it to let the job become such a motivation that God gets unconsciously pushed out of the mind? Along those same lines, how easy is it to let the stress of our job, or let's just broaden that, the stress of life to realign our mind onto the world and we forget the things above? Those are just a couple of distractions. We could talk about others. But the point is, be careful, be wary not to let your distractions snatch away your devotion. Let's be Christians devoted to worshiping God. Here's your second point. How do we get church community? How do we do this thing? We devote ourselves to each other. The church community is devoted to one another. The church community is devoted to one another. Let me read verses 44 through 46. And all who believed were together and had all things in common And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. A true church community is devoted to one another. Now, we introduced this in the first point when we were talking about the koinonia, but I'm gonna expand on this now. The church is devoted to one another. Luke tells us that all believers were together and had all things in common. Now that term all things in common, that doesn't mean that they were forced to redistribute and share their possessions like in a communistic society. That's not what's going on here. Rather, it was a joyous, voluntary giving and sharing. In other words, Everyone was focused on Jesus so much that no one clung to their possessions too tightly. Everyone was willing to share whatever they had. And this sharing spilled over into meeting needs. They were selling their possessions and their belongings. And those two words, possessions and belongings, are just slightly different. Belongings are the things that we have. Possessions can be the things that we have. It also can mean land and property. And we know as we read further into Acts, people were selling their land, they were selling their property, and they were giving to the church, and they were giving to those in need. No one was doing this under compulsion. They were just doing it. In fact, Peter, in Acts chapter 5, he tells Ananias, right before Ananias drops down dead, he tells Ananias that you were not under any obligation to do this. It was voluntary. We're also told that They attended the temple together, and they ate in one another's homes. Verse 46 says, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They attended the temple. It says that they did this together, and that word means with one mind or purpose. They all had the same goal, the same mind. They were coming to the temple all with the same goal. And then they ate in one another's homes. And like I said earlier, this would be different from verse 42. This would be sharing a meal. They would go listen to the apostles teach. They would go worship, and then they would go to each other's homes, and they would share a meal together. Now, eating together, in this day and age, eating together denoted intimacy and trust. You didn't just invite anyone to your table. Only the people that you you wanted to develop intimacy and trust with. To eat together was to deepen relationships. And maybe you've experienced that. Maybe as you've had people in your home, as you eat together and there's laughter and conversation, you, you felt a deepening of the relationship. It's, that's natural. It's supposed to be that way. And by the way, this verse 46, this here is where we get the scriptural support for small groups. I'm going to talk about that more in just a minute. But the early church would meet at the temple, they would hear the apostles' teaching, then they would go home and they would have a meal and they would fellowship together. And their attitude about this, their attitude was just awesome. It says they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Joy just reigned. Joy reigned over the congregation. And it says that they were generous. And that, that word for generous can literally mean simplicity. It can mean the absence of pretense. In other words, they were open-hearted. They had an attitude that was completely open. There were no masks there was no hidden purposes. There was no fear. There was no suspicion. They were solely focused on Jesus and that, then, that they were simply just living life together. Does that sound pretty good? That sounds pretty good. And this is the church. This is the picture of the way it ought to be. But what happens? Why is this... Not so much today. You know, even in our church, why do we not come every day and then go into each other's homes? You know, why do we not have feelings of gladness all the time? Why does it just kind of ebb and flow? Well, I think we need to remember a couple things. One, I think we need to remember that this was the beginning of the church. This is what, where it started. And there's always a lot of excitement at the beginning of something, Right? Whenever you start something new, there's always a lot of excitement. I can remember 15 years ago now, as we were planting this church, there was a lot of excitement, a lot of excitement. We talked about it. We thought about it. We dreamt about it. And then we launched, and it was exciting. You know, but at some point, that excitement kind of wears off, and it's just natural. With new things, that excitement just kind of wears off. And let's just be honest. What's happening here in the new church it's just not practical. I mean, no one in this room can afford to get together every single day for worship and then go fellowship in each other's homes. That'd be nice, but we can't do, They can't afford, at some point, we have to live our lives. At some point, we, we have to provide, we have to go to our jobs, we have to raise our families, we have to take care of the day-to-day things. And there's, there's God-honoring things in all of that, by the way. But you know, I think sometimes we see glimpses of this even in our day and age. I think sometimes we see this kind of thing spring up every now and then. You know, back in February, you'll probably remember the Asbury Revival that happened at Asbury University. And, you know, I didn't say anything about that at the time because I was cautious and I was watching and what's going on here. Many of you, I know, were, were thinking the same thing. But as I watched and then as I uh, studied and as I listened to people and what they were saying about it, I came to the point where I realized I believe this is a Holy Spirit thing. Now, why do I say that? Well, what was going on there at Asbury? People were praying. People were worshiping God. People were confessing sin. My friends, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what he does. Sometimes he does it in a small way. Actually, let me just say that all the time he does it in small ways, and sometimes he does it in bigger ways. This is not something that just happens naturally. And that's not something that happens when evil forces are at work. They don't want God to get glorified like that. When that was going on, I was listening to a podcast and I heard somebody explain it this way. He says, You know, sometimes the Holy Spirit flexes. Sometimes we see his power just a little more vibrant than normal. But, you know, speaking of the Asbury thing, even that had to end, it couldn't go on indefinitely. But I think it was just a small piece of maybe what was going on here in Acts chapter 2. And I think ultimately, we can look at something like this in Acts chapter 2, and we could look at some of the things that happen in our day and age in the world, and what we can do with those things is we can look forward to the day when joy and peace and praise will be the norm where it'll be happening all the time. When Christ comes back to set up his kingdom, that kind of thing is going to be all the time. I believe there's going to be a nonstop concert at the throne of God. And as we're doing the work of God, whatever that is, I'm not sure what that's going to look like, we'll have times where we just come join the concert and then go do something God wants us to do and come back. And I don't know. Those are the musings of Ryan Jackson, so take that for what it is. <laughs> But then there will be no end to our peace. And you want to know something else? There will be no end to our relational unity. Think about this for a second. When God comes back, when he sets up his kingdom, when we are glorified, we will never have to be on guard. We will never have a reason to doubt someone. We will never have a reason to put up boundaries around a potentially destructive relationship because there won't be any of that. Our relationships will be absolutely perfect. But until then, we need to be intentional about our relationships. How? How are we supposed to strive for this community when we're still in our sin? Well, the scriptures actually deal with this. Scriptures actually give us ways that we are supposed to relate to one another. We call them one another verses. There are many verses in Scripture, and I want to read many of them to you. There's going to be on the screen. Just follow along as I read these. John 13 says, Jesus said, "'As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples.'" Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves, Romans 12, 10. Live in harmony with one another, Romans 12, 16. Stop passing judgment on one another, Romans 14, 13. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you, Romans fifteen seven. Instruct one another, Romans 15, 14. Agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you, 1 Corinthians 1.10. Serve one another, Galatians 5.13. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love, Ephesians 4.2. Be kind and compassionate to one another, Ephesians 4.32. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, Ephesians 5.19. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, Ephesians 5.21. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, Colossians 3.13. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, Colossians 3.16. Encourage one another and build each other up, 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Spur one another on toward love and good deeds, Hebrews 10.24. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, Hebrews 10.25. Do not slander one another, James 4.11. Love one another deeply from the heart, First 1 Peter 1.22. Offer hospitality to one another, 1 Peter 4.9 clothe yourselves with humility toward one another first peter 5:5 5, 5. greet one another first peter 5:14 and if we ha- walk in the light as he is in the light we have fellowship with one another first 1 john 1:7 1, i took the time to work through all those verses because I want you to feel the impact of how we as a church should relate to one another. This is hard work. Strike that. This is impossible work. It really is. This is impossible work. Why? Because it requires us to fight against our sinful tendencies we have to, to put aside all our suspicions and the ways we belittle and the ways we want to distrust and the ways we want to gossip. We have to get through all that. We have to put all that aside. We have to reject all the sinfulness inside of us to get to a community like that. And that's not a difficult work. That's an impossible work. We can't do that without the Holy Spirit, not without being sensitive to His guidance, The church community is devoted to one another. But let me tell you that that devotion, that devotion is impossible without the Holy Spirit working in each one of us. You know, I long for it, and I believe you do too. I long for this one another community that we see here in Scripture. But the only way to get there is for each of us to have our own heart-to-heart with ourselves and to go before the Holy Spirit and ask, where am I falling short? The tendency is to point, it's this person, it's that person. But when we get alone and we go with the Holy Spirit and say, where am I falling short? How can I be a better brother, be a better sister to my church? That's what it's going to take to meet these one another verses. And for some of you, and I just want to share this because for some of you, this one another community is difficult on another level because Many of you have been hurt by church community. You know, there's something that happened, perhaps at another church, perhaps even at this church, and you're hurt. And the temptation is to withdraw, to distance ourselves. We we, we put up a wall to protect ourselves from being hurt again, and that's perfectly understandable. It's, It's human nature to do that. But my friends, that's not what God wants of you. He doesn't want you to distance yourself. He wants you to be healed from those hurts. How? Jeremy Linneman is a writer for the Gospel Coalition, and he writes an article that's entitled, We're Hurt and Healed in Community. In that article, he writes this. We're hurt in relationship, and we find healing in relationship. Before you move fully and finally away from the church, Consider if you might never find what your soul truly needs until you move toward healthy, loving Christian friends and spiritual communion again or for the first time. So, if that's you, if you're the one hurt from something that happened however long ago, consider that the path to healing is getting back into healthy Christian relationships. It's a risk. I'll admit that. Absolutely, it's a risk. The truth is you could be hurt again. Why? Because we're all broken. We say stupid things. We do stupid things. We have stupid motives. We hurt. There's an old saying that goes, hurt people hurt people. It means when people are hurt, they naturally hurt others. But you see, our focus... Toward one another should always be love. And it's not often always, it's not always love, but it should be love. And yet, if you think about it, the pain that you're experiencing from a hurt relationship can only be mended by meaningful relationships with other Christians. The band 10th Avenue North sings a song and it goes like this No man is an island, we can be found. No man is an island. Let your guard down. You don't have to fight me. I am for you. We're not meant to live this life alone. Satan wants to get you alone. If he can get you alone, he's won half the battle. So let me encourage you, as painful as it might be, as scary as it might be, get out there and get into relationships. Let people in. Let them be allowed to be involved in your life. Let's be a one another community that God desires. And how do we do that? How do we take these first steps? How do we get involved in these relationships? Well, I'll tell you that here at Harvest, we have the perfect avenue for just such a thing, and most of you know what I'm about to say, are small groups. You know, we have a saying that we used to say a lot Harvest is a church that, not, Harvest is not a church that has small groups. We are a church of small groups. In other words, we want everyone in a small group. We want our Sunday services to be several small groups coming together and making a big group. Why do we want everyone in small groups? Because that's where discipleship happens. That's where the one another's can become practical. That's where you can grow as a disciple, both in your relationship with God and in your relationships with one another. So do you want to get involved in a small group? It was no accident that we had the blurb about small groups on the back of the bulletin. Look at that blurb. See Mike and Shelley. We want you in because we want you to grow as a disciple of Jesus Christ because we love you. How do we get church community? We devote to worshiping God. We devote to one another. And lastly, we devote to being a witness. The church community is devoted to witnessing to the world. Verse 47 praising God. This is a continuation of of the, the attitudes that the church was having. They were praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In the midst of all that was happening, they're going to the temple, they were observing spiritual activities, they were enjoying meals in each other's home, they were selling possessions, they were meeting needs. Amid all of that, the outside world was watching. How could they not see what was going on? Everything in the early church was done in public. And the, watching, the, the world was watching and were told they had favor. They had favor with the early church. That word favor means a winning quality, it means an attractiveness. The early church was attractive to the outside world, or the, the, outside, the outside world was attracted to the early church. They looked in and they wanted what they saw. How do we get there? How do we become attractive to the outside world? Do we have a bunch of evangelistic programs? There's nothing wrong with a program. People are saved through programs. But the thing that attracts unbelievers to the church is when the church community is acting as it should. If the church community is devoted to God and devoted to one another, that behavior can't go unnoticed. It can't be hidden. You can't hide in an uncommon community that behaves as God wants it to. And that type of community will be noticed. It's inevitable. And it's within that kind of community that God's light shines and others come and they ask, what is going on here? And that last part in verse 47, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Ultimately, ultimately, The great evangelist is God himself. It's the Lord who draws people to himself. Jesus says in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up. On the last day, it's God that does the drawing. God brings the soul to the point of repentance. God shows the human heart its desperate need for Him. God was working in the early church, drawing people to Himself every single day, and you better believe He's doing that now. He's drawing people to Himself. Could He be drawing? could this be the day that you finally let go of all your attempts to find your own way through this life and simply submit to him? The gospel, the gospel message is honestly very simple. Jesus said, repent and believe in the gospel. And that simply means, repent simply means to turn away. It's to turn away from your way, from your path, from your sin, and it's to turn toward God. Turn toward God and trust his work on the cross and the grave. You know, getting saved is simply a matter of repenting and believing. And today could be your day. And if that's you sitting right there right now and you don't know if you have a relationship with God or you're certain you don't have a relationship with God, I'm going to make you a promise right now. I'm going to be here after the service. And if you want to know more about faith in Christ, you hunt me down. And I promise to stop and talk. I want to stop and talk to you. We love you and we want you to come to know Christ. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, This raises an interesting question. What is the balance between God's work and our witness? If it's God who draws people to himself, why witness? Why evangelize? Why speak up for him? He's going to do the drawing, right? Why does he need us? Well, he doesn't. Let me just be honest with you. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but he doesn't need us. He doesn't need us at all. But the crazy thing is he wants to use us. He wants us to be involved. He wants us to speak up for him. It's his pleasure to use us to proclaim his message. He has placed on us the incredible responsibility of preaching the message of salvation to the outside world. But really, the truth is, he just wants us to be faithful. He wants us to faithfully share the message. He'll take care of the rest. Do you know what your responsibility is? Simply open your mouth. Simply share the faith. Simply share God's word. He'll take care of that person's heart. It's not your responsibility to change a heart. You can't do that. It's your responsibility to simply speak out boldly and faithfully. So guess what? Pressure's off. I mean, in a way. It still can be scary. It still can be intimidating to share the gospel. I understand that. But really, the pressure's off. Because it's not my responsibility to save anyone. My responsibility is simply be faithful. And one of the greatest ways to be faithful is to be devoted to the worship of God and the people of God. And if we do that, then witnessing opportunities will open up all over the place. If we're devoted as we should be, God's going to open doors all over the place. And if we looked back this past year, I can see how God has opened doors for many of you to share the gospel And the truth is, the outside world will be attracted to what's going on here, just like they were attracted to the early church. Is that what you want? That's what I want. I want a church where the devotion to God and to each other is leading people to want to know what's going on here. I want it to be palpable. I want the faith that we have and the love and the eagerness that we have for each other to to be palpable. Who's with me? Okay. Making sure you guys are awake back there. Good. Good. Let me ask one final question. Why would we give our lives to this? Why would we give our lives to this church community? Why would we bother devoting our entire selves to worshiping God and to one another? Why would we be devoted to witnessing if you stop and think about it, if we're fortunate, we get what? 70, 80 years out of this life. Why spend that time devoted to this thing we call the church? You know, 1 John 4:19 reads, "We love because he first loved us." We're devoted to him because he was first devoted to us. And it gets even crazier. He was devoted to us when there was no good reason for him to be devoted to us. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't benefit from us. While we were still sinners, while there was nothing about us that benefited him, nothing, nothing, Do you remember the Garden of Gethsemane? The disciples couldn't even stay awake and pray with him while he was in agony over the coming cross. The Gospel of Matthew tells us, and again he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy, so leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time. He came and he found them sleeping, and these are the men that he's going to die for. Sleepy, disconnected, unconcerned. You could even go so far as maybe to say uncaring. He comes to them, and he sees them sleeping during his deepest need for companionship, and there's no one there. While we were still sinners, while we had abandoned him, While we had utterly failed him, while we offered him absolutely nothing, while he benefited from us in no way whatsoever, Christ died for us. He was devoted to his people. He was devoted to his mission. He was devoted to the Father. He was devoted to his own gospel. Why should we give our lives to this? Why should we be devoted to this church community? Because our Savior was and is devoted to us, He will never leave us nor forsake us. And that's the motivation we need to do this thing called the church. Your Savior is completely devoted to you, and by devoting ourselves completely to him, we'll build a community that's devoted to worshiping God, one another, and witnessing to a lost and desperate world. That's what I want. Is that what you want? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the church. Thank you for devoting yourself to us. Thank you that you had a plan to save us even when we weren't worth it. Thank you, Jesus, for the sacrifice you made. Thank you for building your church. Lord, help us to be devoted to you. Help us to be devoted to each other. Help us to be devoted to witnessing for your name guide us by your word and your spirit to live the lives we must live in order to do this thing you've called us to do. Strengthen our hands every single day to be your body, to be your bride. For we pray in the great name of Jesus, amen.